shout-out. LGBT Radio for you. Now, those of you who've been listening to Shout Out for some while, I think it was a year ago, we did a very special queer story as part of our uh, QS segment about um, a DJ called Jordana. And I've been trying now for that whole year to actually get her on the show live. And we've succeeded. Jordana, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. And I am... Very, very, very happy to be here. Um, it's it's been a long year, a long journey. But the the good thing is, it's been full of a lot of good things. I have a lot more good things to talk about now than uh, of maybe a year ago. Good, good. But before we get into that, let's take you back to your childhood, um, mm-hmm. because you you are a trans person of color, and you you've had some some hard kicks and some really difficult times in your life growing up. So take you back to your childhood. How difficult was that growing up as as a trans girl? Yeah. So um without giving my age away, but I will I will probably anyway. Uh imagine growing up as a black trans girl in the 19 like 80s, right? Like literally in the 1980s Mm. um early 90s and like so there were no role models you know um there were no uh there was not a much of an understanding in like the medical establishment um as far as like treating trans kids um so i you know basically self-medicated with my um you know my sister was um you know, she knew about me and I used her birth control pills for my first HRT, um, you know, before like actually being able to see a, a doctor, you know, a little bit later. Um, and I, yeah, I got beat up in school and like, I'll just start at the beginning, like in elementary school, right? Like I would get beat up like almost every day, um, either at school or on the way to or from, um, you know, the school principal condoned it, said it was my fault. Why didn't I just, you know, be quote normal, like, um, all the way up through high school. Um, you know, I, when I started to develop breasts, I wore really baggy clothes because like I, didn't I had to hide, you know, like th- that I was developing and, and I wouldn't take swim uh swimming in physical education. And I had the a teacher say, Well, if you're not gonna go swimming, here. Um and he ducked a whole bucket that like they would put towels in into the pool water and put it over my head in the middle of February. And like people could see everything. And I I, I was crying. I had to walk home it, from school in freezing cold Pittsburgh, February temperatures. Um, and yeah, like that, that teacher still had a job. Um, my parents went up, you know, while my, I, while my mom wasn't super supportive, well, she wasn't at all. Uh, my dad, you know, came around to uh, being supportive, but that angered both of them. And I mean, like if that were to happen today, you know, I mean, there would have been lawsuits. There would have, probably been a termination but this stuff was accepted it was just part of like my life growing up 
as a trans girl, as a black trans girl in the, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. It sounds like an incredibly difficult time um, that, that also went on for a very long time. And I was wondering um, when those sorts of thoughts and feelings began for you. And it sounds like you had to carry though that sort of within yourself for, for quite a while without being able to share it with anyone. Is that is that how it was for you? Yeah. Yes and yeah, yes and no. Like so like I had you know, like I, I knew when I was like, I don't know, five years old. Um and you know, I, I carried it with me and you know, I eventually I had like confided in I have three sisters, three wonderful sisters and a brother. And um yeah, like eventually like they knew. Um and then like my uh yeah, my mom found out and was, you know, not that she she actively did everything she could to like um you know, thwart me. Um my dad, you know, at, like at first wasn't very supportive. I mean, I like going back as far as like, even just like potty training, I would not stand up. Right. And like my dad actually used a, used a belt on me to like get me to, you know, to conform. Right. And I wouldn't. And at a certain point, like he said, you know, the branch that doesn't bend breaks, he gave up and, and said, okay, look, that's just, you know, that's just how, you know, she is. So, um, but my mom, you know, she she didn't really um, really come around to accept me until she started to come down with Alzheimer's disease, which was way late in life. Um, but yeah, so like my, you know, my outlet, especially like in my teens, um, was we had one, believe it or not, only one like queer club in the entire city of Pittsburgh, which was, you know, like a mid mid-sized city. And they had a night that was like a over 16 night once a month. And that was like my only outlet. Um, and so, you know, I could go there, I could be myself. Um, there was also a, a trans, uh, well, it was like a trans slash cross dresser group but i was too young to join it i couldn't join until i was like 18 but i was able to really receive like information um so that you know that helped and imagine the only way that i could receive information then was literally getting a xerox copy of something sent through the mail like sent through the post right like because there you know there was no real like internet mm -hmm. other than um Oh, that's a whole other story. When in middle school, I got in well with a lot of the like computer geeks, uh, because you know they they were some of the people that were like on the outside, kind of like me, so they accepted me, and like they would hack into like Johns Hopkins on the ARPANET, and so like I would get trans information that way. That was the only way back then for me to get any kind of trans information because it wasn't really in the libraries. And so other than that trans group, like reprinting things, you know, that were um, in like this national magazine um, in, in terms of actually getting like scientific medical information, 
I, I actually had to like get in with a group of hackers that could help me get access to that information. This is like, like 88, yeah, 87, 88 when that. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, yeah. The first word that comes to mind is resourceful um, and also incredibly out of the box thinking, um, sort of looking at all the different ways that, that you can, one, be who you are, but two, understand uh, more about about who you are by reading about the world and the people in it that might, might share uh, similar stories, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of visibility on television, at least over here. I don't know what it was like in the UK, but like it would just be like, um, you know, these these shows that were like um, talk shows were it was very sensational mm -hmm. for the most part. And but I would see, you know, trans people. Um, so I knew that, you know, they existed. And I watched like the Renee Richards story. I remember my mom coming in and turning it off. And like it aired twice. And I remember like each time, like my mom must have like known exactly when it was going to be on. I had like a little television in my room at that point. My mom came in, shut it off, turn it off. I mean, it, so like, like I had to deal with all of these things. Uh, but as far as being resourceful, I think that's the one thing that like, you know, is the reason I'm still alive today is just I've, I've been able to like, you know, I, I just, I'm a thinker and I'm a planner. And I, if I see an obstacle, I try to find multiple ways around it. Well, it very much sounds like you did. And I'm really glad that even though you weren't able to sort of go into that, um, if I'm when you were, uh, before you were 18, that at least they were able to give you some of the information. Uh, yeah. And that you were able to make friends or sort of have some type of uh, friendship or relationship with, with hackers who were able to get <laughs> you the information again that, get, that you needed. Where, where did things sort of go from there? So sort of like 18 up, what, what happened after that point? Right. So like, so like 18 up. Um, so first of all, I, you know, I was into music, um, again, because like, you know, that was, that was a great outlet. Um, you know, my two biggest interests in, uh, high school were like music and science, right? I was a big science geek and a big music geek. I was in school orchestra and I had, you know, formed bands. So like, uh, you know, I come from, the the neighborhood I, I came from in Pittsburgh um, was not like a it was not a black neighborhood right it was it, it it you know at the time that my family first moved there it was predominantly white um, it became more diverse over time but it, it was still mostly white when I grew up as a teen so like I I was in punk bands I was a guitarist I was in punk and metal bands right and um, literally got what got me into electronic music be besides like going and dancing to it once a month was um, a band that I had started with somebody from my high school um, had gotten a new vocalist and he was transphobic. And so like he, he said that they should have a vote on whether I stayed or not. And like the vote basically was that I got kicked out. And uh, so that was like, that was it for me as far as like bands went at that point, I had already gotten really into electronic music and I was thinking, well, 
you know, who needs a band when you can like be your own band? Like I had like an Atari 1040 uh, computer with the MIDI and everything. I sold some of my guitar equipment, bought like an analog uh, keyboard, a, a Roland Jupiter. Uh, I think it was Roland Jupiter 6, an old EPS, well, not, um, and EPS sa- uh, sampling keyboard. And I just really started diving into what at that time was called like UK hardcore um, and breakbeat. And that was like the sound of like the, the rave scene in Pittsburgh, that, which, which was just starting up because we had an expat that had lived here that was getting records shipped over from his sister. Uh, so she would like buy two copies and send one over to him. So we had no real big like house music scene. Um, or techno music scene, like a lot of U.S. cities. So our rave scene was really closely linked to what the sound was like in the U.K. through that specific DJ. And then others, you know, that um, came about that, you know, would start ordering those records as well. So then I got I got into that and was like, well, how can I make this music? Right. So I, I sort of just like started reverse engineering like the process of, of, of making, you know, chopping up a break beat and like, you know, creating, I was already creating these, you know, kind of sick bass lines and stuff on the analog keyboard. And I had a Roland TB303 and a sync box. So I, I had like the whole acid thing going too. So like, I, I just really like, you know, sort of got lost in the music. It was like an outlet um for me to you know ex- express myself and also be part of this this scene which was you know lots of people my age that didn't at that time didn't really care like you know if you were you know cis straight gay trans whatever yeah everybody was there to have a good time you know in various various states of uh let's just say very various mind states, uh, you know, due to chemicals, but it was, it was a very loving thing, you know, like ecstasy, Molly, like it, it made everybody feel like they were part of this one dance family, you know, and it was, it was great. Like at that time, at the, the very beginning, like I'm saying like early nineties, um, 1992 was like when I made my first demo tape. And so like, I don't know that I was the first U.S. drum and bass producer, but I was among the first U.S. drum and bass producers. Wow. wow. And, you, you did yeah. come to the U.K., didn't you, for a few years? Yeah, and that, that came much that came much later. Um, that's like, you know, like a whole 10 years later. So I, I guess we could fast forward through. Oh, no, 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 we'll, no we'll, we'll, do, we'll, do it, we'll do it gradually. So, so okay. it's like, I, I was just sort of reflecting on some of what you're saying. It sounds like it was a very immersive world for you where you could be creative, but where you could be fully yourself, but also around people that, that really welcomed you in um, and that you felt, you know, all, all connected, whether that be through chemicals or music or both. And, and I was hearing really a stark contrast between that world and an everything Everything else that you had experienced before yeah exactly like so you can imagine pittsburgh was this like you know it, it was this failing steel town where all this the mills shut down this industrial town very grim uh people had been laid off since like the early 80s there was nothing for youth to do really that you know 
if you, you know, if you graduated high school, you, you were looking to get out of the city and move somewhere else. Um, if you were stuck there, then you found creative ways to, uh, to, to spend your time. And, and so like the, the rave scene was the creative outlet, um, for, for a lot of us. And, you know, be, being able to like be oneself among other people who are accepting, um, at the same time, like, while like listening to and, and, you know, dancing to and eventually creating like this cutting edge music, um, that, that was powerful for me. It sounds really powerful. And I'm wondering sort of what happened or, or what came after that. So what were the next couple of years like for you? The, the next couple of years were that. So, you know, I, I started, you know, circulating demo um, tapes like back then there were no there was no digital distribution of anything. So like physically making copies of tapes, like 500, um, I, I would send them to a place that would duplicate them and I would send them all over the place. Right. Like, um, and at that time I wasn't a DJ. Like I, I was, you know, like what you call like a live PA, like I would perform live on stage with my keyboards and stuff. And, but the problem was that nobody um, wanted to accept me as myself at that time. Like the, the, they loved the music and everything, but I was literally told by the biggest promoter in, um, in the city that there was no way that I could like be myself at one of like on stage at one of uh, his raves. Right. So fast forward. I, well, I'm not going to fast forward. I'm just going to say like, so like, then I was, it was weird because like, it was like, I, you know, I had this whole clubbing life of people who would see me. And then, then like, I couldn't be myself on stage because whatever reason, because of whatever gatekeeper promoter was transphobic or didn't feel like, you know, and I, it was just really weird, right? Like the people who had the power to like allow me you know, to, to sort of like blossom more than just as an artist, but as a person, like didn't allow that. And I actually had, uh, you know, like, I guess a, a rival DJ going around telling promoters that didn't know that I was trans in other cities, uh, that I was right. And it was no like secret in Pittsburgh, but like he made it seem like it was this dirty little secret. And I didn't find this out until 2015 when like my MC told me, uh, you know, by the way, this was all going on and I've kept this, you know, quiet until now, but I felt like you should know. Right. And yeah, he, he became a pretty very well-known, uh, us drum and bass DJ slash producer. And this is a guy that I actually helped teach to produce who would come to my house, ate my mom's food, you know, one, one time camped out in uh, the basement until one of the tracks that we were working on together was done. And like, was, you know, at this whole time during the nineties, like basically using, you know, promoters transphobia against me. And I, I only succeeded um, in spite of that. Absolutely, in spite of that, and and it's interesting. You sort of you sharing there that you were able to do something you loved, 
um, but not in its in all its completeness. So you were, you know, producing music and sharing music, but there were people sort of stood in your way telling you how you could present in order to do something that you loved so much. Right, exactly. So like my very first piece of vinyl, like my first official, official release anywhere in the world was a remix um, I did for EMI Chrysalis for um, the artist uh, in band Blondie, right? So like I was contacted through the very, very early internet. And um, I, I said that, you know, my, my brother had been a DJ and like he had, you know, played Heart of Glass. And I said, it would be really cool to do like a drum bass remix to that. Like, and, and so this guy got back to me and it was like, well, we can't give you Heart of Glass, but we can give you a different song, Atomic. And so that was... And I think late 94 and it came out in 95. And that was my very first ever release of, you know, any, any music commercially. Um, so, so that happens. And, um, you know, I'm getting, um, more bookings and things. And I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking this is insane. Like I'm starting to get attention, but like I'm not able to be myself because these promoters will not let me. I have Diesel Boy going around like, you know, at least I didn't know that he was doing it nationally, but like locally I did because I'd hear like, uh, you know, just him talking about me being trans and like how bad that a thing that was. And it was just like, you know, I'm sorry if I named names, but hey, like this is real. This happened. And and then I'm I'm basically thinking, okay, what's gonna happen? Like if I continue to like, you know, do well, like at some point, I can't I can't like not be myself, right? And so in ninety uh, yeah ninety seven my first album came out. Like I got signed to an independent label that had really good. Um, independent distribution and had connections in a lot of the, like, you know, a lot of the tastemakers in New York, um, this label called Liquid Sky. And so that album came out. It was called One World's Collide. And it was very, like, very jazzy, but also had some, some very dark tracks on it. It was, it was a mix, but it was, it was my very first drum and bass album it was like a whole like concept of like you know like alien contact and sci-fi and all these themes and it, it sort of blew up on college radio in, in the states and um then mtv uh wanted a video for one of the tracks because they had started a electronic music show called amp um and at that at that point like i was like okay no more. I cannot. I'm not. And I refuse to hide who I am for these people anymore. Like, um, I'm, I'm not going to like live a lie for their benefit. Right. And so then I, you know, came out to, um, the world at that point as being trans. And that was a whole other thing. So, but yeah, so like I'm the first, openly trans person i was the first openly trans person on mtv in like 97 98 brilliant now 
you had a really awful period in your life where you were viciously attacked, Jordana. Are you able to talk about that? I, I am, and I will uh, to the point at which I, I will not. I mean, I have to talk about it because it, it's a line of delineation. It's a, it's really, it's really like where my life changed uh, completely. So, uh, 97 comes, I, you know, my, my first album blows up, 98 comes, my second album, I think did even better. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm now touring the world, um, playing all over the place, playing, you know, all over the States, yeah, I was playing in Europe, played in Israel, played in all these places, right? Uh, and then in 1999, there was a, uh, drum and bass magazine in the UK called Knowledge, extremely influential magazine. And they decided to do a tour of North America, 30 cities. I don't think there's been a 30 city, just drum and bass focused tour even since then. And I had the privilege of being one of the few US DJs and one of the even fewer women on that tour, um, I, along with DJ Daisy and the most wonderful uh, MC that I've ever had the fortune of, of working with for multiple, multiple um, tour dates, MC Chickaboo. And so, yeah, so that was like, you know, that became like, like my high point. And then the year 2000, uh, like right, you know, at the New Year's Eve big celebration in, in Washington, D.C., I was asked to play and I performed there um, at this big, you know, like, you know, here comes the millennium um, or end of the millennium, you know, big party. And like that in my mind, like that was like that was like the pinnacle. Like I, I, I was everything at that point that like I imagined, you know, like it, it, it's it's interesting. Like I, I read about, um, you know, people like, um, like Yasmin Finney, right? Like, and she, she's like basically at that point that I felt like I was at in 1999. Like I was on the cover of Mix Mag. I was like, I was doing all these things. But the thing was, there were no other, like, there were no other trans people in electronic music other than Dana International who had just won a Eurovision Song Contest in 98. So like, I didn't have like really anybody else to look to. Um, Honey Dijon was was around, but she didn't come out as trans at that point. And in fact, like she actually came out to me at a rave that we were both booked at, which got canceled. She came over into my own hotel room, started asking me, what's it like now that you've like come out as trans? Like I'm, I'm going to come out, like, you know, how, how has it been? So this was like all pre- what happened as i said like you know playing this big new year's eve party in the year 2000 um this is after the knowledge magazine tour and everything so that had been big high point and uh that was in january of, of 2000 and right after that i started my the tour for my third album um the city's collection and i you know, had, had started uh, a series of dates and I played San Francisco, amazing party there. I, I really wish I could have stayed like another day. Um, 
but I, you know, started also developing the flu and, um, yeah, I was like, well, I, I should say I should cancel the next gig and just stay here and try and recover. But I didn't because like, I really respect the people that, you know, spend their hard earned money if they work, you know, all week you know, to, to come to these events. And so then I went to the next gig, which was in Ohio, which was in, um, which was in uh, Kent, Ohio. And, um, Know, something felt off about the gig um, from the start, but you know that's quite often that's just how it is. So every gig is different, every event is different. Um, as I was leaving, I, I did okay. I, I suffered through my my flu, but I did okay, I think. Uh, but as I was leaving the club with um, the promoter escorting me to. Um, you know, there was no Uber, there was no Lyft, mm. right? So I couldn't just like get a Lyft or Uber to my hotel. It was usually like the promoter or somebody, you know, that they had hired would drive you up to, you know, back to where you were saying. In this case, the promoter himself was taking me uh, back to his car to go back and drop me at my hotel. And a group of men attacked me um, in the parking lot. Um and knocked me to the ground, uh, knocked me unconscious. Uh, when I came to, there's a guy there, he's got a gun, and, and he said, if you get up, you know, that's it. Like, and like, I'm, I, I'm in excruciating pain. My face, every, like, everything from, like, my nose all the way down to my neck was in excruciating pain. And it turned out like stuff was broken. Um, but there was a couple that heard like the commotion. Yeah, I, I, when I came to, I heard people's like um, some people yelling and shouting. And, and it was uh, some of the guys that were with this guy, his name was Matthew Goslin. It was like the ringleader of this. Um, they were shouting and th th this couple, this interracial couple came and, and like the guy chased one of them away. And if it hadn't been for him, I really do think that they would have pulled the trigger on me. The promoter was nowhere to be found. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've, you know, heard rumors that that was all part of it. I don't know, whatever. But the the fact of the matter was like, you know, I go, I file, I'm in excruciating pain. The police come, right? After uh, that couple calls them, I, I file a police report. Um, they never, ever arrested the guy. They found out who it was. Uh, my family actually had to hire a, a, an investigator to keep track of his you know, home address because he kept moving and we would turn it over to the Portage County prosecutor and nothing ever happened to this day. The guy never, never spent a day in court, never went to jail. And in his latest 2021 was mocking the whole thing on Facebook, laughing about it with his friends. Somebody sent me a screenshot of, of the fact that like he was still laughing at, about it and saying it's so cool that I had so much power over one person's life and 
I'm doing everything I can to hold it together right now because like you know he's still out there I I, I so okay I'm gonna sort of jump ahead a little bit okay so at that po- point I was like well I, I don't feel safe here his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend had, had sent me an email saying that if given the chance he would quote finish the job so my I I had to cancel that tour obviously to recover um and my label was not supportive at all um which you know I later found out there was a lot of transphobia within the label itself the owner of the label also was jealous because I was out selling him he was also an artist on the label and there was there's this is tough to talk about but like there was an incident where we had all um played a showcase uh for that label and were in a a taxi um and i was you know being driven back to where i was staying uh we were all being dropped off me and several other people who were DJs, producers on that label, he reached over and grabbed my genitals, under, under my skirt and grabbed my genitals. Like it was like, like, yeah, like, and like, like that was at all okay, right? And then like, was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm Brazilian. I'm like that, like, I, and I can't say anything because he owns the label I am on, right? And like, nobody would listen to me if I said anything at all. Anyway, Years later, on a message board, a drum and bass message board uh, based in the UK called Dogs on Acid, he actually like did this huge transphobic post about me. And then at the end, actually referred to that incident, like joking about like what my genitals were, whatever. Like, this is what I had to deal with. And, you know, and the drum based community, as much as I love the music, um, a lot of them, most of them did not love me. Most of them, uh, you know, were not supportive of me. Most of them actively supported, um, you know, me being isolated, be- being uh, eliminated, me being erased. Um, there's documentaries of, you know, the rise of drum and bass in North America. I'm not an any single one of them, no one ever asked me to be. I'm constantly having to fight erasure. But let me get to like what happened, you know, next after the the hate crime in Ohio. I didn't feel safe after uh, that guy's girlfriend told me that he was going to try to finish his job. I was in Pittsburgh, which wasn't far away from Kent, Ohio. And I'm thinking, you know, these people can come travel to where I live. Um, it wasn't like a secret that I was, you know, back then living with my parents after what happened. So I was, I was given an opportunity by a guy who owned a radio station. It was a pirate radio station in London called Flex FM. And um, I was at that time making UK Garage under a different name entirely, Lady J. And uh, he heard some of my stuff online. It's like, you know, it heard me mixing. I was like mixing on, um, you know, like using like Shoutcast or whatever. But I think it was real audio back then, but whatever. I was doing like sets from my home there in Pittsburgh. Um, and he's like, why don't you come over and like, you know, join us? Right. And so, like, 
I had just gotten a check from Paramount Pictures for a song I had licensed to um, the film Zoolander. And so I was like, well, okay, I have the means to leave. I can put a, I can put a whole ocean between me and the people who tried to kill me. I can start out completely under a different DJ name and a new identity. And so I went to London and I totally lived stealth, did not use my name, Jordana. Started from the ground up again with the creative records, just the creative, you know, US and UK garage. And um, I started DJing at uh, Flux FM. And my best friend in London, um, this woman named AC, had a young MC who was, you know, just looking for some exposure that asked if I could like have on my show because I had a, a show every uh, Sunday right before this uh, group called the Genius Crew um, like came on. And uh, my, you know, this guy that owned the station ended up becoming my boyfriend. Right. Um, and he fought against me having her on. I don't I, I don't want she's high school. Uh, she's you know, high school age. Right. Like, but I'm like, no, she's good. Like. I, I said to him, I said, to me, she's like the UK equivalent. Like, she's like a female Eminem. Like, if we just let her, you know, do her thing. That woman's name, Lady Sovereign. Yeah. And if you go, <laughs> yeah, if you, if you go to my other, like, I have two SoundClouds. If you go to um, my SoundCloud.com slash Lady dash J dash UKG, you can actually hear the debut of Lady Sovereign. We on my show yeah <laughs> incredible and, so you lit you as you were saying you literally put an ocean um ocean between that horrifically traumatic event um that happened in in the states um and ended up in the uk where you you built things again from the ground mm -hmm. up because yes. of your love and dedication um to music and it really does show that passion uh, well, and passion and drive is at the core of, of everything that, that you're doing and have done. Yeah. I mean, like to me, music, you know, music is, is music is passion. Music is life. Music is a form of communication. It might have been the first form of human communication. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So like, you know, I, I had to get, I had to get away from from where I was, I hadn't really like completely processed everything that had happened. So you know, I hadn't been able to actually see a therapist or anything about it. None of that. Like, so the best thing I could do was just be somebody else in a different country where there was no baggage, where people didn't know that I was trans, where none of this mattered, where like I could start over again and just be about the music and just try to thrive without transphobia and hate and people trying to kill me. And I mean, that was the whole other thing too, because that like, I was extremely afraid that I would be somehow outed. There was, I, I had a, a night called, um, oh, I'm trying to remember her name, but it was at this place called the Tunnel Club, it was, oh, Trinity at the Channel Club in Vauxhall. And one of the uh, nights, 
they had booked, we had a, you know, garage room and a drum and bass room and they booked a U.S. drum and bass producer and DJ named UFO, who I knew for a fact would recognize me if he, he saw me there. So like, I had to like basically say, Hey, look, I, I'm sick. I won't be able, uh, you know, to, to play that gig because, um, yeah, like I was so afraid of getting out of it. And, you know, I, I'm pretty sure things wouldn't have gone as, uh, you know, Th that well had I been out it at that time because like we're talking 2002 2003 2004 and that that time span you traveled uh from London to Bristol did you not the drum and bass capital of the UK as it turns out y yeah yeah I, I I got a chance I got a chance too like I, I didn't I didn't DJ there and I I also tried to like put a lot of uh space between me and the drum and bass scene, because again, like I had toured with UK drum and bass DJs, right? So I didn't want to be too, seem too close. And, but I did, I did get a chance to, to go to Bristol and, uh, I, I got, you know, I got, I got to go to, um, you know, the, the root of, of the, the Bristol UK sound. I mean, I, I know there's always been like that whole controversy like london versus bristol and I, I loved it all i loved all drum and bass music but i definitely had a special place in my heart for like full cycle recordings ronnie size crust all of them um yeah <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing to hear but, but i think i think both cities offer a lot when it when it comes definitely. to music and diversity um and and it sounds like it felt like a safer time for you in some aspects but also you still had some of that sort of or, or maybe a lot of that fear um still very present uh, maybe you know even that internal processing you were saying that you didn't have um you know a therapist or you, you were just sort of you had to keep going you had to keep on and uh keep doing um what it was that, that you know brought brought happiness into your life and others so i'm very very conscious of time and i, I don't want to speed <laughs> the next gosh how many was it 15 years <laughs> too far too fast um but but where did that you know the next sort of 10 years take you with music and and you know where where are you now and what is it that okay. you're loving now well well you're in luck because um so <laughs> so long story short um i ended up back in the states uh my mom was in ill health and i come back to uh I had been away for years. So I'd come back to visit my family for Thanksgiving. And upon return uh, to the UK, I was deported because they were afraid that I'd overstay my visa. Um, so then I ended up back in, in the US. Uh, um, and I, I didn't do a whole lot uh, musically other than like, I, you know, I played um, well, one of the things I did do was I, I spread the whole um, UK guard sound around as much as I could. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, I, I had to help my dad take care of my mom. So, um, yeah, so I was doing that locally. And then I started getting booked in other places like Atlanta. And I, I feel like I kind of sort of helped, you know, sort of help popularize uh, that sound. As, but at the same time, like, I, I didn't, I didn't ever get back to the, the level of touring that I had before the hate crime. And I couldn't, I had to travel with a MC slash bodyguard, um, which then like also limited opportunities because some promoters didn't want to pay for somebody 
you know, that like they had never heard of just because like they were my MC and, and bodyguard. It was like an ex-Marine, right? But like I needed that in order to have the peace of mind to even tour again. Yeah. Uh, so at a certain point, I moved out to Seattle in late 2006. Um, once my one of my sisters um, had moved back to Pittsburgh um, to help take care of my mom, like my dad said, you're free to go, like, you know, um, go live your life. So I moved to Seattle and when I came out here, like, you know, nobody really like I was, you know, I had CDs of, of mixes and stuff. I'm giving them to all these club owners and promoters. Nobody really wanted to hear anything about it, whatever. So I wasn't able to do much with uh, music then because there just wasn't there wasn't a whole, a whole lot of opportunity um, when I first got here. And so from, I guess. 2006. Wow. Like, so this is the whole rise in this country of like electronic dance music. I remember walking into a Safeway, which is kind of like, I guess, Sainsbury's there and seeing a cover of uh, this magazine called Herb. And on the cover of it was Lady Sovereign. I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. Right. But at the same time, there's like this overwhelming sadness that like, I'm like, I'm not part of any of this stuff that's going on. But you know, I'm I'm still making music, but it's not being heard. I'm posting it on the early SoundCloud, but you know, okay, whatever. Um, and you know, I had to have my day job like uh, as a recording engineer out at like Microsoft, um, as like a contract worker, and you know that consumed just travel because I don't drive. Uh, it was environmentally conscious even back then, um, so I you know I don't drive, but that took a lot of time commuting back and forth from where I lived. All right. So then I find out in 2011 that one of the songs, the last song on my first album uh, uh, called the song is called 5 a.m. Rents was actually recorded live at a rave had been sampled and slowed down by this guy named Bass Nectar. I didn't know who this guy was. I, you know, I wasn't really at that point, super into the scene. Uh, it couldn't be right. And, um, you know, I'm like, oh, this is insane. Like, uh, he didn't even, you know, he, it's, he didn't even bother contacting me. And so I tried to get in touch with him and I, I get roadblocks. No, there was no way I could get through to him at all. And then I had to like hire an attorney with like no money. I'm almost no money at this point. I was, you know, no longer working as a contract worker for Microsoft. And um, now I'm not in Seattle anymore. I'm, I've had to leave the city because it's an expensive city to live in. And I'm living in the middle of Trump land, which is like south of this this little town south of Seattle. And I'm like completely isolated, like didn't even want to leave the house. Uh, there's way more on that in the Them magazine article. So I'd urge your listeners to read that because I don't want to rehash all that. But long story short, a years long battle with base nectar legally uh, took place um and you know that that all happened but then also in that same time period 2014 2015 um i got approached to do the soundtrack for a documentary produced by a uh, co-produced by uh Laverne Cox of Orange is the New Black and Rocky Horror Picture Show fame. And like that, that was, it was amazing. Um, you know, she heard like 
one of the songs that I posted on SoundCloud uh, was this just you know very dark drum and bass song called uh, Distance, yeah. And she loved it. So you know, had gravitas, and that was kind of like what she she wanted because this documentary was about a black trans woman who um, was defending herself in a hate crime, right? Like it, her story super resonated with me. Um, which is why I was, I was really, you know, honored to be able to be a part of, of the project. And yeah, like, so, so that happened. And, you know, there's, it started to be press again about like my story. People were starting to actually care about, you know, the, the whole Black Lives Matter thing and Black trans lives matter. And people were just rediscovering my story. And I saw my, uh, the, the people that did follow me, you know, on my socials, like, it was interesting watching from then till now 